You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Hey, Young and Profiters, welcome to this episode of Yap Classic, a series where we dig up episodes from the archive and replay some of the Yap team's favorite interviews. Before we jump into this episode, I want you to take a second to think about your best and biggest idea. What dream product or innovation has been sitting on your back burner for years? More often than not, we don't bring our ideas to life. They're widely dismissed or written off as crazy, but that's just because they are big ideas. Facing rejection just might be a sign that your idea is actually headed in the right direction. Today, I want to share with you episode number 33, Shoot Your Loon Shot with Safi Bacall, a trained physicist who transformed his careers every five years or so. He's done everything from business consulting to co-founding a pharmaceutical company to now becoming a best-selling author. We chatted about how he was able to reinvent himself so often and then about his really popular book, Loon Shots, how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars cure diseases, and transform industries. For those who are ready to shoot their loon shot, this Yap Classic is for you. Let's get into it. Hey, Safi, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thanks, very glad to be here. So before we get rolling, I just want to mention that I noticed you were from New Jersey. You grew up in Princeton? That's right. My parents were working at the university. Cool. Well, I'm a proud Jersey girl. I grew up in Central Jersey in Wachung, so happy to have a fellow Jerseyan on the show. I think you make number two. Glad to meet a fellow country person. (laughs) So, Safi, just to introduce you to my listeners, you are someone who is continually evolving. You have, in your own words, changed careers roughly every five years of your adult life. You started out as a serious academic scientist. You switched fields into particle physics, I believe. Then you did a total 360 and moved into business consulting. And then after that, you co-founded a pharmaceutical company. And finally, today, you are known as a best-selling author. So that's a super diverse career. Could you just walk us through your professional past at a high level? Maybe mention some of the big and proudest moments that you have leading up to today. <laughs> sure. And can you do that in five seconds? Sure. No problem. Let's go. <laughs> no, no. Five minutes is okay. <laughs> I grew up as the son of two scientists, so it was pretty natural to start a career in science. And so I didn't set foot off a university until I was about 28 or 29. And I really enjoyed it. But I did find, as you say that my curiosity started waning. Once I'd kind of learned a subject really well, I started looking for the next big challenge. And that's a theme that kind of stayed with me for a lot of these changes over 
the course of my life, which is people talk about follow your passion. For me, it's been a lot more about follow my curiosity. Mm. So I started off in one area of science called particle physics, where you study the science of the very small, what happens inside an atom, inside a proton, inside a neutron at very small distances or very high energies. And after a while, after you start, you're at the bottom of this big hill and you have no idea what people are talking about. And then you march up the hill and it's kind of a big challenge. And then you reach sort of like, oh, you're kind of one of the tribe and you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. After that, I looked for kind of the next big hill to climb. And so I switched fields into another area of science where, again, I started at the bottom of the hill. It's called condensed matter physics. It's the study of the many, what happens to large systems of interacting particles, like the weird quantum effects that happen when you cool metals down, for example, to very low temperatures, and all of a sudden, friction just sort of completely disappears, and currents start traveling forever, you get superconductors, things like that, these crazy quantum effects appear. So I did that again for about five years. I started kind of at the bottom of the hill and felt like a total imposter, and was just really curious about all the ideas and science and techniques and tools. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of worked my way up, and then kind of got curious again, because I'd been so long in a university and academic world, I sort of realized that, well, you know, actually 99 plus percent of the people in the world aren't theoretical physicists. They do these things called jobs. <laughs> they work in these things called offices, and I'd never seen one. And I was sort of curious about like, well, how does that work? Mm -hmm. So I joined this consulting firm that likes to hire people who are outside the mainstream of MBAs or business schools. and. That was an incredible learning experience. It's like drinking from a fire hose, and it was super, super fun for that. It's like learning a whole new world, people with jobs and offices and how they solve problems in the business world. That mm -hmm. was kind of fascinating. And then once I understood that, I don't think for me a career of just sort of advising people was what I wanted to do. I wanted to build something, and I wanted to see if I could bridge the world that I come from, the science world with the business world, and do something kind of bigger than myself, something kind of more meaningful than, you know, making big companies more successful. And so that's when I started a biotech company developing drugs for cancer. Everybody knows someone with cancer or some other severe disease. And for me, it was just enormously motivating not only to get to learn something new again, start at the bottom of the hill and march my way up, but also to know that when I wake up every morning, if I do really well and if I can bring people along and motivate them and we can build something great together, we might just give families more time on earth with their loved ones. And that's a super motivating kind of bigger purpose that transcends yourself. And that was super exciting. Mm -hmm. So the thread that goes through all of those things is, for me, it's like follow my curiosity. What am I really excited about learning? Yeah. And then how did you get into becoming an author? Well, that's that was another kind of odd thing. Just for fun, one time I gave a talk. I was asked to give a talk on one of these sort of idea gatherings. Everybody was supposed to talk about something that is not their work. And I've always sort of had a passion for history, for looking back and, and also for teasing out patterns. So if you're a scientist, especially a physicist, what you try to do is tease out patterns from nature. So I was interested in applying that to history. So I gave a talk one time, 3,000 years of physics in 45 minutes, the eight biggest ideas. So I went back 3,000 years and I said, can we figure out what were the eight biggest jumps in human knowledge? And 
I found that to be just enormously fun. And I read a lot more than I usually read because normally when you're running a business, or at least for me, when I was running a business, I had blinders on. And I really actually didn't read books very much because I was so focused on, you know, the the usual stuff when you're running a, a business, which is putting out fires and raising money and uh, hiring people and so on. It was enormously fun to learn and then enormously fun to figure out how to communicate that to people in a way that was kind of fun and entertaining. Both of those were really interesting, exciting, fun challenges, things that I hadn't done before. Both of those were sort of like starting at the bottom of the hill. I'd never really looked back at history and tried to tease out patterns. I'd never really thought about how do you describe this stuff to people in a way that's sort of fun and entertaining and excites them. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that was super fun. It was like I took two weeks off, you know, around Christmas time one year. And I thought, God, that was that was like the most fun I've had in a long time. And I was like, if I ever get the opportunity, maybe I should write that up. Because so many people came up to me and said, wow, that was awesome. You know, you, you tell these stories in a way that we can actually get it and understand it. And it's funny. And people like it. And they were like, you should write a book. And I was like, a book? Are you kidding? I'm like running a business. But that sort of stuck with me. And I thought, wow, that'd be kind of fun. I really enjoyed that couple of weeks of thinking. And I did it again. And sort of each year, I would sort of take two weeks off and try to write some new short essay or historical thinking. And eventually I got the opportunity after I left my company and I said, well, a lot of people in my field, especially after you've run a company for quite a while and we were public, there are just a lot of opportunities presented to you once you have all the scar tissue of having done it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. You know, want to run this, want to run that. And I was like, you know what? I could always do that. Let me just try something totally new. Yeah. And this might be something that I think you guys talk about a lot. I literally just talked about this with my wife this morning, which is when given two choices, sort of repeat something you've done before, whether it's eat at the same restaurant or stay in the same place or visit the same town for, let's say, a vacation or try something a little different. I kind of tend to go for try something new. Yeah. Because if all other things are equal, trying something new broadens your experience. It gives you new data that you could then learn from. So after I left my company, I said, well, I could go do this again. I've kind of done it. I sort of know a little bit what that's like. But this writing thing has been kind of in the back of my mind. And I've always admired really interesting writers. And I had a bunch of writer friends. I said, why don't I just take six months and see, see what it's like? I have absolutely no idea. I don't even know what it means to sit down and write because normally I go into an office and you have certain goals and you have a team and I know exactly what to do there. I don't know what it means to write. Mm -hmm. You're looking at a blank piece of paper. How do you structure that? So I found myself at the bottom of a hill again, and that was awesome because that meant there was going to be a hard trek, and pretty soon you'd get to the top and have developed a new skill. And then I found, God, this is enormously fun. So that's how I kind of transitioned. You know, that's amazing. And just to like reiterate to my listeners, according to my research and listening to other podcasts and shows you were on, you were never a big writer. You weren't an English guy. It wasn't something that you really cared for before you made this transition. So it's astonishing how many times you've actually evolved and the fact that you've really overachieved 
for everybody tuning in, you are a best-selling author now. You released a book in 2019, your first book, and it's a bestseller with all these accolades, which is amazing, you know, and you had a pharmaceutical company and you not only just co-founded a pharmaceutical company, you guys went public and, and it got like very successful. So it's amazing how you've done this and reinvented yourself over and over again. Some people think that they're too old to change or switch careers. And so you must have a certain mindset about having the strength to burn everything down and then rebuild every five or so years. So what do you think makes you different from other people who get scared and kind of, you know, they might slightly evolve their career. Like for me, I went from B to B to like B to C, which was like actually a big jump. But, you know, you totally do 360s. So what's really your secret sauce and mindset? on that. Embracing the joy of learning, embracing the personal deltas. Here's what I mean by that. And by the way, I want to ask you because you started a podcast that's totally new. So I'll answer your question and you answer <laughs> my question. So I think absolutely everybody can do this. Every single person can do this. They have it inside them. And it's absolutely comes down to kind of one simple thing. It's looking at the hill. Let's say you're thinking of, well, I'm doing this thing. I've been doing it for a while. Especially if your curiosity has sort of waned, you know, you've kind of figured it out. There's another thing that maybe is like a little glimmer of a baby thought in your head. And that's cool. Grow that little thought. Follow that little thought and say, well, what if? Mm-hmm. How might I explore that little thought? And then when you look at that, there's a plus and a minus. There is a hill. To learn to become good at some new thing, you will be starting at the bottom of that hill. Now, there's two ways to look at that hill, and this is the key. You could look at that hill as, man, that's going to be a long slog climb. Mm -hmm. That's tough. Or you can look at that hill, that is going to be awesome when I make it up the top of that hill. I will have grown so much. Let's go do it. So it's absolutely the two ways of looking at that hill. And what you want to do is follow those little thoughts, those little baby ideas and change them from I can't or it's impossible to how might I and what if questions. Stop asking yourself, why shouldn't I do this? Because then you'll just create a lot of reasons and start asking yourselves, how might I Mm -hmm. or what if? And just keep asking how might I and what if and how might I and what if and how might I and what if. Don't worry about all the why not stuff. Just identify those little baby thoughts of things that you might be doing differently. And just keep asking yourself those two questions. How might I blank? What if blank? And then whenever you see a hill, don't worry about the climb up. Embrace the climb up. That climb up, every single step is growing you. Mm -hmm. Every single step. Like for me, when I started off at zero, never having written a page, every single step, it was awesome because you grow the most at the beginning. Like at the beginning of the hill, you're using these muscles you've never used and they grow really fast. Once you've gotten really good at something, you know, your learning curve plateaus. And this is why it's even better when you're older. And it's better the older you get. Why? Because when you're a young kid, you have these amazing growths, learning growth. So you go from every year in in elementary school and high school and college as a young adult, you grow from 
you know, a one out of 10 on something, a two out of 10 on something, a three out of 10 on something Mm -hmm. to like a five out of 10 or a seven out of 10. You go from knowing nothing about finance to sort of being in control to getting it, but pretty quickly. And as you get older, you've mastered sort of a core set of skills and that experience happens less and less. And so going up a hill, marching up a hill is actually an incredible gift to find a new hill that you want to climb and then experiencing that learning curve again. So when I was in my 40s and I took a blank piece of paper, I was like, wow, how do we do this? I have no idea. That's a gift. It's like every week I feel growth. Whereas if you've been doing something for five years or 10 years, how often can you say, oh, every week I've really grown in this job? No, if you've done something five or 10 years, you're probably already at eight out of 10. And maybe next week you'll be an 8.1 out of 10. Mm -hmm. But if you start with a blank piece of paper, you started something new. Well, week one, you might be a zero out of 10. Week two, you might be a two out of 10. That's the percentage growth from zero to two is infinity. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And then from two to four, you know, is 100% growth. So what you do is you embrace the delta, you accept, understand, and relish the fact that that march up the hill is actually a gift. It's an incredibly rapid growth rate. And the older you get, the rarer that is. Yeah. I was just going to mention, let's say you're at a level two. You landed a new job. You're in this new experience. You're at a level two. Everybody else is at an eight, nine, ten. You have imposter syndrome, right? It's something that a lot of us face. How did you deal with that when you were at McKinsey is probably the best example of like those people were probably in that kind of a role for a long time or something similar and you're coming out of academia. Like, how did you deal with that? You know, that's funny. It's exactly right. Every single transition, I felt like an imposter. I would say that feeling lasts about two years. So when I jumped from academia into the business world, I was like, even wearing a suit felt crazy to me because I'd been in jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is just not me. But everyone around me is wearing this, so let me put that on. And I'm like, I'm an imposter here. But once you realize that it's just a dictionary, Nothing anybody says is really all that complicated or hard to figure out. They're just using a shorthand because those guys who are seven or eight out of 10, they have a common language. When they say, you know, balance sheet, Mm -hmm. I had no idea what that was. Or when they say, you know, assets, or when they say, you know, strategic uncertainty. Acronyms (laughs) are the worst. All these acronyms, you know, when you come in, you have no idea what they're talking about. So you feel like an imposter, just like when you land in a foreign country and they're talking all this stuff that you don't understand. So you're like, well, I'm definitely traveling in a foreign land. And you realize that imposter feeling is just associated with a dictionary. And it's not a very complicated dictionary. Once you understand the words, the shorthand, none of the ideas are rocket science, or as a friend of mine likes to say, none of those ideas are rocket surgery. They're just a shorthand. And when you know what they mean, you got it. And then you're part of the club. Mm -hmm. Once you speak the language, you're like, oh, when you said this word or this phrase, that's what you meant. You said this. And then you're sort of like, okay, now now I get it. Then I jumped into starting a company. And again, I was like, I had no idea. I didn't even know the words. I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't know how you interacted with these people. I didn't know stock options. I didn't know what that was, Mm -hmm. employment agreement, all this stuff. But you know what? 
you know, just six months or a year, you got it. And none of those things are rocket science. Yeah. So you start to realize that imposter syndrome is kind of a dictionary problem. Yeah. And it's kind of a small dictionary problem. It's not like you need to memorize Merriam-Webster. It's like 50 or 100 ideas or concepts or phrases. And once you've got those under your belt, okay, it's not really that mysterious. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me. But do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace to help me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me, I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. This episode of Yap is brought to you by Eight Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer when it comes to leveling up your productivity and ultimately the quality of your life. But did you know that more than 30% of Americans struggle with their sleep? That's why I've teamed up with our friends at Eight Sleep and their Pod Pro cover to help you fall asleep and stay asleep. Here's a hack to get a better night's rest tonight. Maybe you haven't had a bedtime since you were a kid, but having a consistent sleep schedule helps your body maintain your optimal circadian rhythm. Once your body gets into the habit of going to bed and falling asleep at the same time every single day, you'll begin to fall asleep faster and wake up actually feeling rested. Keeping up with a sleep schedule will not only improve the quantity of your sleep by getting more consistent hours in, but it will also tremendously improve the quality of your sleep too. And while the exact perfect number of hours of sleep for every person varies, the most important key with a sleep schedule is consistency, making sure you're falling asleep and waking up at relatively the same time every day, even on the weekends. I know that's pretty hard, but you gotta do it. If you think that keeping a sleep schedule is far too difficult, 8sleep is here to make it easy. The Pro Pod cover from 8sleep is the only mattress cover and technology duo that actively regulates temperature. 
keeping you as cool or as hot as you want. Eat Sleep combines this temperature control technology with their new Gentle Rise, which silently wakes you with vibration and gradual temperature changes. You can set the Eight Sleep system to naturally allow your body to fall asleep and wake up right from their Sleep OS app, the world's first operating system for sleep optimization. Your individual AI model learns your ideal thermal environment and automatically adjusts to keep you in a deep sleep. This is the future of sleep, young and profiters. I'm telling you. And during the pandemic, it was really easy for me to let my sleep schedule slide off the rails. I didn't have a commute. It was easy to sleep in and stay up later. I would stay in my pajamas all day and never feel like it was either always time to sleep or never time to sleep. I never knew when to sleep. My sleep schedule just went out the window. But once I started getting more disciplined with my nighttime rituals, my bedtime, waking up at the same day, no matter what, taking a shower like I used to right away in the morning before for work, I immediately noticed that I had more energy throughout the day. And my eight sleep pro pod cover has taken my sleep schedule to a whole new level. I feel like I've become a master of sleep. Through the app, I can track each night of sleep that I'm getting and adjust it to what works best for me. And not to mention, it's the most comfortable mattress I've ever had. And it has all these different perks like temperature control, health insights, and more. I am so excited to get sleep every night and I know I'm getting amazing quality sleep. This ProPod cover is amazing. I've got the mattress too. It is so bougie, so amazing. I absolutely love it. I feel so spoiled with my 8Sleep ProPod cover and mattress. But don't just take it from me. 8Sleep has garnered the attention from other CEOs, high performers, and top CrossFit athletes as well. We're all getting better sleep with 8Sleep and you should too. Go check out 8sleep.com. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash yap and check out the ProPod cover to save $150 at checkout. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash yap and you'll save $150 on your ProPod cover. This is Hala from Young and Profiting encouraging you to invest in your sleep and invest in yourself. You won't regret it. Just visit 8sleep.com slash yap to save $150 on your ProPod cover. You know, that is so, so true. Like, I'm thinking about all my situations in life where I felt like an imposter syndrome. And it's really just all about like the words that people use. Because when you're having conversations with people and you start to get lost because they said this acronym or word that you're not familiar with, then you just start feeling like, oh, I don't belong here. I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, you know, but what I found is helpful, and I do this all the time, is if I ever am in a situation where I don't know a word. I always write it down and I always take time to like go look it up and learn right away, you know, and that really helps you get up to speed like super quickly. But you mentioned that you wanted to ask me something. So let me turn the tables back to you. Well, you talk about reinvention and you talk about how hard it is. So I'm curious, how did you decide to do a podcast. Yeah, well, that's a long story, but I've been doing online radio shows and I used to work at a radio station since I was like 22, the past eight or so years, I've been just doing radio on the side. There was maybe like a four-year break when I went to go get my MBA and, and things like that. But I always did it on the side and I'm still doing it on the side. I work at Disney streaming services right now. So it's always been like a side thing. <laughs> 
Which brings me to another question for you is like, do you recommend having side hustles for projects that you're curious about? And I want to talk about curiosity in a bit, but do you recommend having side hustles or kind of dropping whatever you're doing cold turkey and going like all in? Millennials are so interested in side hustles. So that's why I bring it up. Yeah, absolutely not dropping it and going all in. What you want to do whenever you have kind of a situation that there's some fair amount of uncertainty and you don't really know, for example, should I do X or should I do Y or should I do Z with my life? Absolutely, in those situations, what you want to do is plant a bunch of small seeds, spread your bets, make a bunch of little bets. So do a little bit of X, find ways where you can do a little of X, a little of Y, a little of Z. You plant those seeds. You don't plant one seed and then dump a ton of water on it and hope it grows. You plant a bunch of little seeds, water them all equally, and it will become clear to you mm -hmm. over time and probably quite quickly which one works for you. Like if I think I tried, let's say when I left my company, I planted a bunch of seeds while I was talking to a couple companies about this sort of advising thing, talking about some investors about this sort of investing thing, and then doing a little bit of writing. And I planted a bunch of seeds. And then within months, it became clear to me, I just enjoyed this one particular seed. That flower was growing faster and bigger and more beautiful than all the other ones. And that's when you know, like, oh, I got it. Mm -hmm. So you absolutely want to get your feet wet. You want to get a little bit of experience in a few things because they won't all work out and nothing is exactly the same. You just don't have any data points. You don't know what it's going to be like until you try it. And what you want to do is gather those data points so that you can make a better decision in a few months or whenever it is. Yeah. Previously, you mentioned that curiosity is really key to all this. And it reminds me of a quote I had David Meltzer on a couple weeks ago. And he mentioned that you really need to be more interested than interesting if you want to succeed in something new. So when it comes to curiosity, how can we better develop that skill? And why is it really so important to hone when learning something new? Because it's a motivator. So when you are curious, you're open to new ideas. You are enjoying asking questions and you're enjoying learning. And curiosity is really what drives learning. If someone is like lecturing at you, broadcasting at you, dumping information on you, mm -hmm. you're not really learning very well. But when you're curious and try to figure stuff out on your own, that's when you learn the best. And so Anyone who's thinking about making a transition, the number one thing you want to get good at is learning because you're going to have some new skills that you need to master. So curiosity matters because learning and learning well is what will make you succeed at whatever new thing you're trying. So how do you hone that? That's a really good question. How do you encourage that? You have to notice the thoughts that are going on in your head and you have to notice step back and recognize whenever a tiny little bubble pops up like, wait, what? Or how did this happen? You've got to, rather than shut that down and say, let me just keep doing my regular thing, you've got to lean into that. So you've got to notice, develop this skill of noticing. Like, for example, artists have that incredibly well, I've found. And really great writers do this incredibly well. They just go around life looking very carefully. You know, if there's a, a pianist playing, what are his fingers doing? 
What do they look like? What is their texture? How would I describe it? What adjectives might I use? What is his hair like? Is it parted? Is it not parted? Why? What kind of impression does that take? What's an analogy with how he's striking the keys? How might I describe that? What does it remind me? And just notice these tiny little questions. And rather than redirecting, let me just be quiet and listen to the music, lean into the questions. So if you want to hone your curiosity, lean into asking questions. Hmm. That's really good. And speaking of, you know, learning something new, let's talk about really quick how you learned how to write. I was listening to that interview you had that's very popular with Tim Ferriss, and you were talking about how you kind of used a scientific method to break down the way that authors wrote. And I thought that was really interesting, and I was hoping you could share that with our listeners. Yeah, I realized that I admired certain writers. I didn't really have much experience with literature. I came from a much more science background, a much more technical background, and people with science and technical backgrounds are not usually known for their writing skills. Mm-hmm. A friend sent me a book, Nabokov's Short Stories, or recommended the book, and I got it, and I opened it up, and I remember reading a paragraph, and my jaw dropped. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know the English language could do this. What is he doing? And I started to think, well, is there a pattern? Of course, he wasn't the only one. I read just a couple more, a handful of authors that had similar perfect pitch, just the words, the rhythm, the cadence just created this music that was unbelievable. And I started to try to understand, is there a pattern to it? What are they doing? And in the beginning, you're completely at the bottom of a hill, zero out of 10 or one out of 10. And so what I would do is every night for about two hours, I would just study one or two paragraphs, that's it. And I would read that paragraph of a very small handful of writers, typically Nabokov, I mentioned on Tim's show, another one, Donald Hall, who is a poet laureate, and just another beautiful writer in a very different way, almost the opposite way of Nabokov. And I would try to figure out what they're doing by changing the paragraph. Mm. Like let me change a word. Wow, that sounds so much worse. Why? Why does that sound so much worse? And then I would look at what is he doing? You know, you you can read some of the excellent guidebooks like, you know, Strunk and White or Zisner's Writing Well or a couple of those types of things. And there's sort of guidelines. And occasionally they would just absolutely violate those guidelines. They would write in the passive voice instead of the active voice. They use very strange transitions. And I'd say, well, let me make it more like the guidelines. Let me rewrite that to be an active voice. Whoa, that sounds so much worse. Why? And so slowly I started to like tease out my own little principles like, oh, here's a principle. Here's a principle. And then I would copy and paste like examples of other writing. And so I developed kind of a short list of principles. Here's what they do. Here's like a pacing beat. Here's a certain kind of transition. Here's another kind of transition. When I would read, I didn't read for plot or for story. I would just read to see these kind of writing principles that really great writers that I admired were using. Hmm. And then it was very difficult in the beginning because I had no eye for it, no ear for it. I didn't really understand. But it's like going on a basketball court and shooting baskets. The first time you go there, you might even miss the rim completely. But if you just keep doing it and keep doing it, all of a sudden you'll get the hang of it. You watch what other people do, and then it starts to go in a few times and it started to sort of make sense. So it was 
kind of this tunneling into very small doses of writing and trying to vary them a little bit and trying to tease out what is it that they're doing and not giving up that made the difference. That's amazing. And I think like whether you want to get into writing or whatever you're trying to get into, just take cues from what he did for writing, like study the experts. Like for me, I like to listen to podcast hosts and look at like, how do they transition? How do they open up their show? Like what are the little things that you can take from everyone? Because at the end of the day, everyone's basically just copying each other (laughs) and learning from each other. and, And you can put together your own style by taking tidbits from everyone else. So I think that's wonderful advice. We are about halfway through and I think that we should move on to your wildly fascinating concept, Loon Shots. This past year, you wrote a book called Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases and Transform. This book has been selected for the Washington Post's 10 leadership books to watch for in 2019, Inc.'s 10 business books you need to read in 2019, and Business Insider's 14 books everyone will be reading in 2019. So basically everyone's saying to read your book, and that's super impressive. And I want to ask, how does it feel to be a brand new author with a hit right out of the gate? And did you expect this much success right away? I feel like a total imposter. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard for me even to get the words out of my mouth that I'm a writer or an author. It just sounds incredibly strange to me because that was not my life at all, even remotely for 20 years. So it's a very, yeah, I just feel like an imposter. I'm still in that beginning Mm -hmm. phase. Yeah, for sure. To answer your question, I had absolutely no idea. I was writing this stuff. A lot of it was you know, things that made me laugh, things that were funny for me, things that I was really curious about, histories that I'd grown up being told and always thought were true. And then as I dug in, and I just really enjoy digging in to find the real story beneath the surface or fake story, I discovered, holy cow, what really happened was almost exactly the opposite. I found that fascinating. And I found how do I structure all this stuff? How do I tell the story of how the Allies won World War II or the rise and fall of Pan Am or Edwin Land and Polaroid and his secret clandestine activities advising the federal government or Steve Jobs and Pixar Mm -hmm. or the rise and fall of the British Empire and how they're all connected by this one idea? How could I possibly connect these stories? That was such an interesting puzzle for me to solve that I just enjoyed doing it. I had absolutely no idea whether anybody else would share my sense of humor or share my curiosity about it. So I just did the best I could to make it interesting. Somewhere in the middle there, actually, I got some great advice, which was, don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Just make something beautiful. Mm, That's good. And that was from Richard Preston, who was a best-selling author of a book called The Hot Zone and as a great writer, a very experienced writer. He said, just make something beautiful. So anytime I kind of mind straight to, hey, you know, what might happen in the future? I just said, you know what? Eh, doesn't matter. Just make something beautiful. And I would go back to the manuscript and back to the book and back to the stories and just try to make them better. Yeah, well, it's clear that you did a good job. So congratulations. Digging into Loon Shots, we actually interviewed billionaire and entrepreneur Naveen Jain a couple months back, and he wrote the book Moon Shots, Creating a World of Abundance. And it was a great conversation. If anyone's interested to go tune into that, it's episode 22. 
Moonshots has become somewhat of a buzzword, and most people know what that is. A moonshot is an astronomically ambitious project. It's usually pretty expensive. It radically changes the world, like going to the moon or curing cancer. And from my research, I learned that you actually made up the word loonshot. So why did you feel like you needed to create an entirely new word? And how is a loonshot different than a moonshot? Or are you saying it's the same thing, but we got moonshots wrong? (laughs) A moonshot, as you said, is a big goal. It's a destination. Loonshots is how we get there. Nurturing loonshots is how we get there. And the reason I made up the term is because Although a moonshot is a big goal, it's something that's generally widely recognized as being important. For example, when Kennedy declared in 1961, we should put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, that was the original moonshot and he was widely applauded. Mm -hmm. But loonshots are ideas that are often widely dismissed or neglected and their champions are written off as crazy. And that's because the big ideas, the ones that change the course of science, business, or history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're much more likely to go through these long, dark tunnels of being rejected for years. Mm -hmm. For example, when Kennedy suggested his idea in 61, He was absolutely applauded for that. But not many people know that 40 years earlier, Robert Goddard suggested the ideas that would get us to the moon, which is liquid fuel jet propulsion. In other words, rockets. And when Goddard suggested his ideas, he was widely ridiculed. Mm. The New York Times wrote a piece saying, well, this man Goddard doesn't understand the basic principles of physics that we teach our children in high school every year, namely that Newton's laws of action and reaction make rocket flight in space in a vacuum impossible. There's nothing to push against. And 14 years after Goddard's death in July 1969, one day after the successful Apollo 11 rocket launch to the moon, the Times issued a retraction. Hmm. Apparently, rocket flight does not violate 17th century physics and, quote, the Times regrets the error. So Goddard's idea was a classic loon shot. Loon shots are how we get to those great big goals. And they matter because if you are running a business or if you are directing a military and you ignore those loon shots, you are taking a big risk that your competitor or your enemy nurtures them first. For example, the U.S. had dismissed Goddard's ideas, the saloon shots of rocket flight, but not Nazi Germany. Scientists in Germany read Goddard's papers, said, hey, this this could work, Mm. and they built the first jet aircraft and the first long-range missiles, the first jet-powered missiles, which the Allies had no answer to. That's why declaring moonshots is a good thing, it's fine, but nurturing loon shots is even more important. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. <coughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage, and even the did we just hit a million orders stage. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. 
Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify, and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store, and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. I want to talk to all you employers out there and let's talk about company culture. At Yap Media, we have a super unique company culture. We are all obsessed with excellence and we even call ourselves this really cute name, Scrappy Hustlers. We're all Scrappy Hustlers at Yap Media. And my team is growing fast. And hiring is a pain in the butt, especially if you're looking for A players that are going to roll up their sleeves. But luckily, when it comes to hiring, I no longer feel overwhelmed by the search for the perfect candidate because I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed's matching engine always presents me with a pool of high quality candidates that match my job description to a T. If you're tired of drowning in your hiring pool, Indeed is here to rescue you. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging your candidates, making the entire hiring process a breeze. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply need to hire, you need Indeed. That's so interesting. And so why do you think it is that the most important breakthroughs in any field are usually the ones that get shot down at first? Because if they're not, if everybody said, hey, yeah, let's go do it, then everybody would have done it. So the really big breakthroughs are the ones that get shot down that are very easy to dismiss. I'll give you an example. Now, you're probably too young to take a statin drug and you're probably very healthy, but tens of millions of Americans take statins. Those are cholesterol-lowering drugs. And when the guy who discovered the statins, who created that statin category, a Japanese scientist named Akiro Endo, started that project, it seemed like lowering cholesterol would be a good thing. But then very rapidly, a bunch of data came in that cholesterol-lowering diets didn't really work and some other drugs that claimed to lower cholesterol didn't really work. And almost everybody gave up. But he kept going. And People told him he was kind of crazy to continue because not only did all these trials not work and this cholesterol-lowering stuff, but people said, well, wait a minute, every cell in your body contains cholesterol. So what you're doing just sounds completely nuts, completely stupid. Don't even try. 
But he persisted, and then he tried again, and then he came up, we found this drug, which turned out to be the first statin, and then he tried it in mice, which is what you do in drug discovery, and it didn't work. Nothing happened. At that point, almost everyone would give up. They said, look, if you can't make it work in the laboratory, then you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. But he kept going because he said, well, you know, maybe there's a species difference, and he had some reason to believe that the drug and the cholesterol work differently in different species. It turns out he was exactly right. Now we know that rats only have the one kind of cholesterol, the good cholesterol, whereas humans and apes and chickens and others have both. Mm. So he kept going and he discovered, oh, look, wow, it works really well in chickens. And they ran it in trials. And after they started in the early trials, again, there was some negative data and everybody abandoned the field. But he kept going. He kept going. And in the end, we got this drug that has now saved millions of lives. So that's a story of what I call the three deaths of the loon shot. The really good ideas are not the ones that are like, oh, let me try it for a week. I think it's working. Awesome. Let's go do it. Because if you tried it for a week, chances are lots of people tried it for a week. Mm -hmm. I thought your principle of three deaths or three massive failures was so interesting. And you say that every loon shot really needs to go through this before they're worthy of deeper consideration. So what do you exactly mean by that? That was a lesson that a very famous drug discoverer, a guy named Sir James Black, who passed away a few years ago, but we were very lucky to be able to work with him in the last few years of his life. And he won the Nobel Prize for developing two of the biggest medical breakthroughs of the latter part of the 20th century. And I remember one day I was feeling kind of depressed, kind of dejected. Some experiment hadn't worked in the lab. And it was sort of late at night. And we were having a couple of whiskeys together. And he leaned over and he said to me, ah, my boy, it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. <laughs> and what he was telling me is like, don't worry about these project failures. He said, all of the really good projects have failed several times before they succeeded. And the more I looked, it wasn't just true in my field in medical research. It was true broadly. Like Facebook was the 25th social network. There'd been a couple dozen mm -hmm. before Facebook. Google was the maybe 18th search engine, I think. There'd been many before. None of them had made any money. None of them had succeeded in business. And there were all sorts of reasons that they previous ones had failed. And that comes down to another principle, which is the false fail, mm -hmm. which is sometimes you will get a failure that's not because your idea is bad, but because there's a flaw in the experiment. So the example I told you of the statin drugs, which have now saved millions of lives and are taken by tens of millions of Americans, it is a good idea. It really does work. But when they gave it to the mice, when they started it in mouse studies, it failed, which is when so many people gave up, but that was a false fail because trying to treat mice with a drug that lowers bad cholesterol and mice don't have that, that's a flaw in the experiment. So Facebook was another good story of a false fail mm -hmm. because what happened was when Zuckerberg was taking this idea around in 2004, I think, it was right around the time of Friendster Friendster had risen as a social network and then was starting to fail. Like people were abandoning Friendster for the next sexy social network, which at the time was MySpace. And so all of these investors passed and they said, well, social networks are just like genes. 
they're a fad. You know, someone wears this jean in this season and then switches to this other brand in this other season and so forth. And everybody just switches social networks so there's no money, no money, and all these investors pass. Well, that was a false fail. It was the false fail of Friendster. And Peter Thiel, as an example, went in and he had some friends who worked at Friendster and he got the data and he looked at the retention data and he said, holy cow, people are staying on this site for hours. Mm. That's kind of amazing. And that's despite the fact when you used Friendster, as he knew, the site wasn't very stable. It kept crashing. And he realized people were leaving Friendster not because it was a bad business model. Any site that can get users to stay for hours is probably going to be a pretty good business model. Mm -hmm. They were leaving because of a software glitch. It was a false fail. That was a false fail of Friendster. Teal wrote a check for $500,000 and he sold it eight years later for a billion. That's incredible. It just goes to show how you really need to dig into the actual failure and not just like write it off as, oh yeah, this failed next. You call it, listen to the suck with curiosity. <laughs> right, exactly right. And I add the curiosity thing there because you get this advice, you read this advice all the time of active listening. So I got those lectures and workshops all the time, active listening, repeat back what you've heard. But just repeating back what you've heard is not good enough. If you've poured your soul into a project, you're a young entrepreneur and someone, you know, an investor walks away or, or someone rejects your pitch or a partner walks away, a customer doesn't like your product, just saying, okay, yeah, I got it and moving on is not very helpful. Your temptation when someone rejects your pitch or a customer walks away is, oh, they just don't get it or, oh, they're idiots. It's just to dismiss them, especially if someone tells you, oh, your baby's ugly. You're like, what? And you just want to hit them. But what you really want to do is take off that defensiveness hat and probe like a detective, like a Sherlock Holmes. Set aside all that rejection stuff and give yourself time to get over it and then probe like Sherlock Holmes. Oh, could you help me understand? What was it about my pitch or what was it about the market? And only by getting really curious, and that's a gift. You have to be very polite. You have to ask people very nicely because there's no upside to them in walking you through why they said no. They're busy and those are difficult conversations and they could end friendships if they don't go well. So you really have to probe and use the best hands and people skills you've got to tease out why they rejected whatever you are offering. Because only when you pull on that thread, if you pull on that thread enough, there'll be a little gold nugget at the end, which is something you overlooked. They may know something about competitors, about the market that you just don't know. But a lot of people who are looking do know. Mm -hmm. We're going to choose product X because it has this feature and that's why we like it. And you had no idea. You're a little blind to it because you've been working with blinders on on your thing. Only by listening to the suck with curiosity, LSC, you can pull on that thread and get that little gold nugget that can save you. Yeah. At what point would you suggest that people give up on an idea? For me, actually, that LSC is a signal. It's sort of like a thermometer or a reality check. If I'm getting rejection after rejection and I find myself just getting really, really defensive and my curiosity has stopped, then it might be time. Mm. If, however, 
I'm still really curious. I'm like, oh, help me understand. Then it may be a sign that I am onto something because if I'm really curious, I've understood that there's a core there and I will keep probing until I can keep pulling on that thread and find out why it's not working. Once I find out why it's not working and I have that data, I will probably have enough data on my own to make a decision. If I really set aside the defensiveness and the dismissing and the urge to you know, call your mother and get support that you're on the right track and all that <laughs> stuff, and really listen with curiosity, genuine curiosity, not sort of lip surface curiosity, help me understand why you're not interested. That would be a super valuable thing you could do if you could just take five minutes and walk me through. Once you've done that enough, you will probably know. Mm. If they're missing it because a competitor is offering X and that's better than what you have for some reason, then you can go back and say, look, can I match that competitor? Can I do something better than them? In which case you'll go work on it. Or you'll know like, wow, I just cannot think of a single way I can make my thing better than a competitor. I'm going to give it like a week, but I just can't think of a single way I can make it better than that competitor. And then, you know, you have your answer. Yeah. So for me, when my LSC flag has gone down and I'm not asking with curiosity anymore, I know kind of the emotions have taken over, that I'm not really rational about it. Very cool. Flipping back to loon shots and kind of getting more detail into that. From my understanding, there's really two types. There's P-type and S-type. Could you describe the difference to our listeners and maybe give an example of each one? Sure. So this is important because most people have blinders to one or the other. They're very good at one and not the other. Mm. And by missing that, they are putting themselves at great risk that somebody will very quickly figure out something better and take them over. And if you learn how to do that, you can be a far, far stronger entrepreneur, or manager, or leader. So here's what I mean. P-Type is a product loon shot or a product innovation, something that makes your product better. For example, discovery of the telephone or the discovery of the transistor, the personal computer or jet engines, those are all new products. Mm -hmm. S-Type is a small change in strategy. For example, when Sam Walton had this idea of he wanted to open a retail store and his wife said, okay, honey, I'm happy to support you in your dream, but I just don't want to live in a big city. So he found a town. He liked being married and he liked quail hunting. So he found a town in Northwest Arkansas that was right on the border of four states. He could do quail hunting all year round and he put his store there. He didn't create any new product Selling stuff is not a new product. Selling it a little bit cheaper is not a new product. He just moved somewhere different. And there was a huge demand, as he later found out, out in rural America for larger stores that sold stuff a little bit more cheaply. So that's an example of an S-type strategy. So if you're, let's say, an artist, you can create a new product, or you're a scientist, you can create a new product, you're an engineer, you can create a new product that other people don't have. But strategy might be a new way to market it, mm. a new person you can partner with, a new channel you can use to get the word out. None of those have to do with inventing a new product. Those are all small changes in strategy, a new way to price it, a new way to bundle it with something that no one has thought about bundling it before. 
So the reason it matters understanding these two different things is most people just say, let me make my product better and then sit back and see what happens. Well, usually nothing. The ones who really do great are the ones who can do both, who can make their product better and come up with a new strategy, a new way of bundling it with somebody, a new person to work with, a new kind of partnership, a new kind of collaboration, a new kind of pricing model. Then they can reach kind of incredible heights. Mm -hmm. Another concept that I think is related to this that you talk about in your book, and it deals with specifically leadership, is the Moses trap. Would you unpack this for our listeners? Yeah, the Moses Trap is this kind of myth of leadership that you will get if you read sort of glossy magazine articles and so on, that the great leader is one who stands on the top of a mountain and raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project. This is what we will work on, the iPod, and parts the seas and everybody gets out of the way and does that. So that's a myth, and that's actually a trap. That might work once or twice, but if that's how you lead, it's going to inevitably end in disaster because you will raise your staff and anoint the wrong thing, as happened for Steve Jobs early in his career when he did lead like that. Mm -hmm. And that was a disaster many times and nearly bankrupted several of his companies. The first Apple stint at Next and Pixar when he took it over, all three nearly failed and went bankrupt when he led in that way. What the truly great leaders do who build these organizations that kind of relentlessly can stay ahead of the competition, they lead much more like careful gardeners. They have the delicate hand of a gardener where they can balance you know, the soldiers who are taking care of the core business, who are delivering and manufacturing products on time, on budget, on spec, and getting them to customers with quality consistently. and the radical ideas that those people or groups or projects that are easily dismissed and seem a little nutty, the loon shots. And those two sets of projects or two sets of people are very different, the artists and the soldiers. And I'll come back to what that means to small companies where you don't have the resources to have two separate types of people. Mm-hmm. But in general, you have these two kind of mindsets, the artist mindset where you're really trying to maximize risk. You want to try a lot of things that seem a little bit crazy, most of which will fail, and that's good. And then the soldier mindset, where you're trying to minimize risk. And those are opposite objectives. And a lot of companies fail because they mash them together. One is like solid, one is like liquid. And if you try to do both at the same time, all you get is mush. Mm. What you really need to do is separate those mindsets and say, look, for this part of the year, or with this group of the people, this is our job, and it's awesome. It's a great thing to do. You gotta love your artists and soldiers equally, and that's the key. You gotta love both sides equally. You gotta appreciate both sides equally. You can't favor one or the other. That's what a gardener does. It nurtures the tiny little baby stage ideas, makes sure it transfers them to the field where they can grow into big mature plants, and then he brings back those ideas. He creates the ecosystem for ideas and projects to travel between the artists and soldiers equally. That needs the delicate hand of a gardener because those two mindsets are so different. The failure point in most innovation is the transfer between those two things, Mm -hmm. is getting that balance right. So leading like a Moses tends to be a disaster because you just point to one group and say, you do this, and you miss that delicate balance and the transfer back and forth that you need to succeed. 
Hmm. Semi-related, I know that you believe that structure is more important than culture. There's a common saying most of us have probably heard, culture eats strategy for breakfast, meaning that bad culture destroys companies no matter how good their strategies may be. But you challenge that status quo with your own saying that structure eats culture for lunch. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by this and why structure is so important for organizational success? Sure. So you can think of culture as the patterns of behavior that you see on the surface. You know, you have a political culture, you have an innovative culture. And the problem with this notion of you got to address culture and change culture is that fixing culture is very hard and often impossible. Hmm. No amount of forcing employees to watch two-hour videos or sing kumbaya or hold hands is going to change culture very much. But if you look at structure, which is, for example, what do you reward? Those are the small changes that can actually transform behavior. So, for example, if you're at a group or company that rewards rank, that's what's celebrated, you're going to get a very political culture because everyone's going to be sort of elbowing their neighbor to get promoted. On the other hand, if you're at a company that rewards ideas and intelligent risk-taking, for example, promotions, you only get 1% bump in salary. I'm just going to take an extreme. Let's say in the first case, by rewarding wank, let's say promotions get to the extreme like a 100% bump in salary. You get a very political culture. If you reward intelligent ideas and risk-taking and forget about what your rank is or what your hierarchy is, you're going to get a very innovative culture. That's what I mean by structure can drive culture, can drive patterns of behavior. The analogy I use is with a glass of water. So pattern of behavior is, for example, are the molecules sloshing around that's a liquid or the molecules rigidly in place that's a solid. It's the same exact molecule. Those are just two very different patterns of behavior. Now, I'll tell you what, no amount of yelling at a block of ice, no amount of a CEO yelling at a block of ice, hey, molecules, why don't you guys loosen up a little bit, is going to melt that block of ice. Mm-hmm. They're going to just be rigidly in place. But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. So underlying the patterns of behavior that you see are these small elements of structure that can have dramatic effects on those patterns of behavior. And that's what I mean by structure can eat culture for lunch. Awesome. So we're running up on time. Before we go, I thought a really fun way to close out this episode would be to ask you some fun questions that you have on your website that kind of sum up some of the key themes in your book. So I'll trigger you one by one with each of them. What do James Bond and Lipitor have in common? They were both initially loon shots that became wildly successful franchises. The first James Bond was rejected by every major film studio. It went through the three deaths of a loon shot. Every studio killed it. Said, oh, there's no way anyone will take seriously a metrosexual British spy who saves the world. <laughs> and then it grew into the longest-running, most successful film franchise in history. Lipitor is a cholesterol-lowering drug went through the three deaths of the loon shot, no way it'll ever work, and it became the most successful drug franchise in history. Why do traffic jams appear out of nowhere on highways? Traffic jams appear out of nowhere. That's an example of a phase transition. We were just talking about liquid to solid as a sudden change in pattern of behavior that's triggered by a small change in structure. Well, traffic jams suddenly appear on highways because it's also a phase transition between 
two states. One is called smooth flow, and one is called jammed flow. And you get the sudden transition between those two as you cross a critical density of cars on the highway. As soon as the separation gets closer than a certain amount, people's urge to slam on their brakes when something small happens overrides their desire to target cruise speed. And little things grow into massive jams. Hmm. How does that relate to loon shots? Well, the idea in the book is a new way of thinking about the behavior of groups and the patterns people have in teams and companies, why they suddenly change from embracing wild new ideas to rigidly Mm. rejecting them, like a glass of water will suddenly change from liquid to solid, or traffic flow will suddenly change from smooth flow to jammed flow. And so it's actually no one has really thought about groups or behavior of groups in this way in 200 years. So it's a, a new way of thinking about that. And once you understand that, once you understand this idea of a transition in the behavior of group and there's small changes in structure, and you can tease out what the small changes in structure are, you can begin to manage it. You can begin to control it. You can design more innovative teams and companies, and it gives you a, a handful of rules you can use to innovate faster and better. Awesome. Well, this was an incredible interview. I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. It was so nice to talk to you. You are such a smart, brilliant guy with so much experience, so much to share with us. So I wish you the best. I hope you continue to write because you clearly have a talent for it. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? They can go to my website, loonshots.com, or follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. The tag is just my full name, Safi Bacall. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Safi. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was enormously fun. And and thank you for all the kind words. I should do this every morning. Really boost me up. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Thank you. There you you have it. A Yap Classic with Safi Bacall. One of my favorites straight from the Young and Profiting Vault. Remember, Yap episodes are evergreen. So go on and flip through all of our past content because I bet there's a gem out there that you've missed. What episode would you like to hear next on our Yap Classic series? Be sure to let me know on your favorite podcast platform by leaving us a review, or you can connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the amazing Yap team as always. This is Hala signing off.